Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Thanks for listening to Creative Control. Uh, While I have you here, please consider supporting Youth Empowerment and Support Services, otherwise known as YES. Based in Edmonton, Alberta, YES provides immediate and low-barrier overnight and day shelter, temporary supportive housing, and individualized wraparound supports for young people aged 15 to 24. They work collaboratively within a network of care focused on the prevention of youth homelessness by providing youth with the necessary supports to stabilize their housing, improve their well-being, build life skills, connect with community, and avoid re-entry into homelessness. Learn more about how to donate or otherwise support YES by visiting YESS.org. Hi, I'm Jed Bodwin, and I live in Wichita, Kansas. I am a Patreon supporter for Creative Control. I discovered Creative Control some years ago, I think maybe while looking for interviews with Tommy Stinson of The Replacements, and uh, I stumbled across this this conversation that Vish had with Tommy Stinson that was really insightful. Vish held his own. I think Tommy can be a little bit of a difficult interview at times, and it went really well, and it really uh, got into some areas that I wasn't expecting, and I thought, gosh, I have to listen to more of this guy and his podcast. Sometimes I'm not necessarily a fan of the music or musicians that uh, Vish will have on the show, but I always appreciate their creative process a little bit more. And uh, more times than not, though, it does lead me to uh, finding a new musical artist that I'm interested in or to think a little bit differently about maybe some artists whose work I've overlooked. So, you know, go ahead, and if you've been waiting at all to support Vish and Creative Control, now is probably the best time to do it. I know as a public radio employee here in Kansas, listener-supported broadcasting, whether it's podcasts or radio itself, really isn't a thing of the past. It's actually very much a thing of both the present and the future. So, yay Vish, yay Creative Control. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, Please visit patreon.com slash creative control today. Creative Control with Vish Khanna. Ray Paget is a meticulous music journalist and writer who is currently based in Burlington, Vermont. Originally from Chicago, Paget founded the Cover Songs blog, Cover Me, 
and wrote a couple of books about the subject, too. 2017's Cover Me, The Stories Behind the Greatest Cover Songs of All Time, and for the 33 and a Third album series, 2020's I'm Your Fan, The Songs of Leonard Cohen. His writing has previously appeared in The New Yorker, Spin, Vice, and Mojo, among others, and he currently helms the Substack newsletter Flagging Down the Double E's, which chronicles Bob Dylan in concert in the past and in the present. Bob Dylan is the subject of Paget's latest book, a remarkably revealing one called Pledging My Time, Conversations with Bob Dylan Band Members, which finds Paget speaking to short and long-term and obscure and iconic Dylan collaborators from every decade of his career, many of whom are opening up about their experiences with him for the first or most extensive time. Pledging My Time was published by EWP Press on June 6, 2023, and it prompted Ray and I to have a pleasant conversation about things like uh, the time we met in Tulsa, Oklahoma during the opening of the Bob Dylan Center. His background as a music writer and journalist, our shared love of Weird Al Yankovic and Mad Magazine, our entry points into being serious Bob Dylan fans, why we like to see him live as much as possible, and some memories of select shows, the resonance of his Dylan newsletter and how this Pledging My Time book began to take shape, his vast knowledge of Dylan's history and how that helped him during interviews with his subjects, the great insights we get about what it's like to live and work beside Bob Dylan, future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this donor-driven podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations to this show's Patreon. That's the primary source of revenue for all the work that goes into this podcast. So if, you, if you're able to and uh, feel compelled to, please head over to patreon.com slash Control and support my work today. Thank you so much. Plus, in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is episode 793 of Creative Control, featuring the lovely and talented writer and journalist Ray Paget with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hey, Ray, how's it going? Hey, good. Nice to see you again. I think the last time we saw each other, we were in person in Tulsa, Oklahoma, right? Yeah, at the opening of the Bob Dylan Center a year a year or so ago. A year and a bit ago. That's my last, I think that was my last big trip. That was fun. Uh, did you have a good time at that thing? I, I really did, I must say. Yeah, I, it was last minute for me, and I hadn't been really sure what to expect. I mean, Tulsa. I was like, why, why would I go to Tulsa? But but it was great. <laughs> I, I had a great time. I was I went back there a month ago for this Dylan conference they did. Yes. What was that? Well, yeah, I saw something about that. What was that all about? It's so it was put on by the University of Tulsa, which now has, of course, a Bob Dylan school or whatever they call it. Um, yeah, and it was. I mean, it was just sort of more, you know, an opportunity for a bunch of Dylan nerds to get together, which was is always fun. Aren't enough yeah. of those. Well, that's great. No, you're you're ensconced. You're immersed. You are a Dylan guy now. How does that feel? 
Uh, it feels a little strange. I mean, I've been like a Dylan fan for, you know, 20 years, but like just yesterday I was texting with Winston Watson, who's like not a, you know, not a famous person, but like to me as a Dylan fan, like the idea that one day I would be on like a text basis with Winston Watson, the drummer from the nineties. I mean, yeah, yeah. again, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a nerd. No one else cares, but for me, no, that's no, really exciting. I, I care. That's why I wanted you on the show. This <laughs> book you wrote is remarkable. We're going to talk about it. Uh, at length and yeah Winston uh, very candid by the way he's one of the people profiled in your book very candid uh, you got you got a lot of candor out of people I would say yeah well thank you I mean that's always the challenge you know a lot of these people are fairly tight-lipped on their time with Dylan sort of following you know following his example people don't want to feel like their tail and tail is out of school so it took some work and cajoling to sort of get these people to open up because they often haven't before yeah. Well, we'll get into that, like I say, in a moment. But I want to give uh, people a sense of your uh, your uh, background uh, as a writer and, and these sorts of things and as a Dylan fan. Let's begin with uh, let's begin with the writing. Uh, I, what do you do exactly? Right. Why? What makes you uh, qualified to write such a book? <laughs> I'm not sure I am, frankly. <laughs> um, but it, it is. I've written a couple books before. Um, I, my, my main thing for most of the years I've been doing this has been cover songs. The Dylan thing has been, like I said, I've been a super fan, but that's kind of been a side, you know, just in my personal life. I wrote a book about covers. That I've run a blog about covers for many years. I wrote my first book was about covers um, in 2017. Then the second book was in the 33 and a third series, which I'm sure some of you music fan listeners know, like the little books about albums. And that one was kind of about tribute albums through the lens of a Leonard Cohen tribute album. So that came out a few years ago. But yeah, so this is my, this is my first Dylan book. And, and otherwise, you're, uh, how did you get into writing in the first place? I started in high school. We had a high school newspaper, and I just somehow fell into being the music reviewer. Um, so once, I think it was maybe monthly, once a month, I would review an album. The first Dylan album I reviewed, thankfully, this is pre-everything being online because it would probably be horrible, but it was the live 1964, the, one of the early yeah. bootleg series yeah. came out when I was in high school. So that was the first Dylan album I reviewed in almost the first Dylan album I heard, even though it's not really a proper album, but that would have been very early in my Dylan fandom. I have it here. I'm just grabbing it so uh, you and I can have a visual aid. This one, was it? Oh, you got it on vinyl. Yeah, that, that's a hard thing to get. This is the one you mean. This is Bob Dylan. Yeah, that's 19, the one. 1964. The Bootleg Series volume, is this the one that's wrong? I feel like it's, it says volume five. I think it's six. But it's actually cause... six, but the spine says five. It's it's got an error. Oh, I never. Yeah. Wow, misprint probably makes it even more valuable. Yeah, five five was the first Rolling Thunder one, I think. That's correct. Yeah, they they it's just a little weird defect. And uh, anyway, yeah, I love that thing. That's great. So you started as a I, I started the same way. That's the first time I wrote stuff. Uh, but do you have a sense of what compelled you to think? Like, were you an avid uh, music journalism reader? Or anything as a as a kid? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I had subscriptions to Rolling Stone and Spin back when a Spin subscription was a thing one could have, <laughs> you know, prob probably since middle school. Yeah. And I was just, I remember pouring through like the, you know, the record reviews and circling the ones I wanted. And then, then you'd get to the CD store and realize that your allowance wouldn't cover 90% of them. So then the hard decisions needed to be made of what CD you were going to buy that week. Yeah. But yeah, I was, I, I remember one of my early ones was Rolling Stone gave a very small one of those tiny like you know 50 word reviews to a new album by an un obscure band called the killers 
And I remember circling it and buying the CD. And then I went and saw them in like this tiny club in Chicago that wasn't even sold out. So that was like an early thing of me being ahead of the curve. And it was because of some tiny Rolling Stone review. Are you from Chicago? Yeah. Okay. Where are you now? Uh, now I'm in Burlington, Vermont, just ah. just four, 40 minutes south of the border. What, what brings you to Vermont exactly? What, what prompts a, a fellow like yourself to move to Vermont? We lived in, my wife and I lived in New York City for a decade, and then it was more of a, like a lot of people, you get in your 30s, you th- start thinking kids, and New York City becomes to seem less uh, manageable than it had yeah. been in your 20s. So we, I'd gone, I went to school uh, nearby in New Hampshire, and Burlington was like the closest place that had music venues or record stores, so I spent a fair amount of time here when I was in college. I see. Okay. Just just life. Not, not you weren't like, I got to get to, if there's one place in the world I need to be. It's Burlington, Vermont. That wasn't your feeling. No, but we've sort of fell in love with it. I mean, we looked at a few places in that vein of small, but not so small. They won't have live music. New England, because we have family in New England. You know, so we looked at Portland, Maine. We looked at Burlington, Vermont. We looked at like Northampton. And we're just big Burlington fans. We didn't even know of how close it is to like Montreal. You know, that was a a plus that surprised us. We were just up there in Montreal last weekend seeing some shows. So we get up fairly often. Who would you see? Oh, it, was, it was a good weekend, man. Friday night, the war on drugs. Saturday night, the smile. That's oh, a, oh, was it a festival that you were at? No, it was just just happened to be two two back to back shows. Oh, cool. So we nice. made, made a weekend of it. Yeah. Wait, so how many hours? Uh, how long is it a drive from Burlington to Montreal? Assuming a quick border crossing, which is always the X factor, it's about an hour hour and a half. Oh, my God! All right, you should God. People from Montreal should go down and visit you in Burlington, Vermont. I shouldn't. I shouldn't do this. You should welcome them yourself. I'm sorry. I am opposing. <laughs> no, they're, 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 they're welcome. And I think I think the word is out because we're, there are a lot of Canadians <laughs> coming, down, <laughs> coming to down to visit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so uh, just to, to double back just a second. So you mentioned the Spin Magazine thing. You know, our musical origin stories uh, can be interesting. Uh, do you have any sort of sense memory of when music first struck you? Sorry, very quickly and just to contextualize this for you. I always, I often tell the story about how my cousin, when I was like six years old, my older cousin started playing me music. And among the things he played me was a, a Beatles compilation. And then I was like, what the hell is that? Why is that guy screaming about twisting and shouting? That sounds dangerous somehow. I want to learn more <laughs> about that. Then became hooked and then started reading about the Beatles, watching documentaries. I, I think I uh, that, that little tape uh, got me into uh, journalism on some level of wanting to know more. It wasn't enough. I wanted to know the the story behind the music. Do you have anything like that in your sense memory of like what drew you to get that spin subscription and, and start seeking out music as a, not only I guess as a thing to enjoy, but to like explore, if that makes sense. I think my closest equivalent would probably be through Weird Al. Um, <laughs> I got very into Weird Al in, I don't know, early middle school, maybe when I was 10 or so. And of course, a Weird Al album is about half parodies. And for the new ones, like the ones I was getting at the time, I knew what songs he was parodying. It was, I think, The Offspring, Pretty Fly for ah, a White Guy was like nice. big at the time. So like, I, you know, I got it. But then when I started getting the older CDs, all of a sudden he's parodying songs I've never heard of from, right. you know, the 80s and earlier in the 90s. So at a certain point, I'm, you know, because I have that sort of nerdy brain, I started to say, all right, what are these songs? And look up who the original artists were. Some of them, you know, were just massive hits I didn't know. And some of them... You know, he can't he can't 
get them all right. Sometimes he thinks some Mick Jagger solo single is going to be a smash hit, and then it is yeah. immediately forgotten to time. So I'm like looking up, you know, was it? I think that's Ruthless People. I think that's the one. Yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, so I, I started. I started just going going in all, down all these rabbit holes through Weird Al parodies, and I guess I mean I'm you know maybe 11 or 12 at the time, but that might have been the first inkling that that something was amiss. I was just brain. I was just talking about this how Mad Magazine and Weird Al were kind of these weird funhouse mirror gateways into pop culture because my I had I had a Mad Magazine subscription too yeah I did too <laughs> I, when we went to India in 1989 I was 11 I think and uh, I bought in the street bazaars they had like Mad Magazine so I was in India buying Mad Magazine which is <laughs> insane in in a weird way but uh, that's how pervasive it was you now my my daughter was singing uh. I don't know whose song it is. Is it Miley Cyrus that sings Party in the USA? Is that right? As parodied by Weird Al in Party in the CIA. Very good. So I, <laughs> my daughter was singing it, and then I started singing along, and my wife's like, why do you know that song? I'm like, because of the Weird Al. <laughs> Weird Al did a version of it. Uh-huh. I interview, I've, weird, I've interviewed Weird Al twice, and, uh, and it was a big thrill, and he's very sweet. And I've told the stories about our uh, email exchanges and stuff after uh, – so I won't bore people with it, but he's just a very sweet guy, and uh, I love him. So that's that's funny. That's funny to me that we yeah. both like weirdo. And famously, I got to, I got to interview him for my first book, the one about cover songs. It's, it was like the angle of the book was sort of the history of covers told through twenty iconic covers. But I kind of fudged it a little bit because I wanted to interview Weird Al. <laughs> so I made one of those quote unquote twenty iconic covers, his polka medleys, ah. where he. I mean, the angle was sort of like my my thesis was sort of a, that a parody is the opposite of a cover in the sense of a cover keeps the lyrics and changes the music. A parody does the exact opposite, change the lyrics, keep the music. Yeah. So that was sort of how I shoehorned him in, but it was partly just an excuse to to nerd out with Weird Al about about polka medleys, which pretty much no one asks him about. No, that's great. And so how, what was that like for you, uh, given that he was an icon for you as a child, to get to talk to Weird Al? Yeah, I was real. That's one of those where I was real nervous leading up to it. I mean, once I once I'm sort of going, I don't know the adrenaline or something. I'm not nervous in the moment, but like in the days and especially you know that last hour when you're just sitting around, sort of your knees shaking, waiting, waiting to get the call. Uh, yeah, that was a nervous one for me for sure. It's funny you bring this up, and I don't. We'll jump around a little bit here, but to just dive into your book for a moment uh, as a uh, segueing from what you just said. One of the things I find remarkable about your book, and I realize it's been edited and whatnot, you know, we are not hearing the actual interviews, but your ability uh, in the moment, it seems, to uh, fill in blanks with facts and, you know, songs that when someone, when one of your uh, interview subjects is like, what's that thing, that thing he did, Dylan did? And you're like, your response seems quick of like, and it's sometimes quite obscure. And I don't think I, I there was a time I think I could be like you. And now my brain is so jumbled full of information. I'm like, yeah, shit, I don't. That's crazy. The Ray seems to always know you just your research and your knowledge of Dylan is really astounding as it comes across in the book. So I just want to commend you on that being in the moment with someone and being able to draw these little kernels, I think sometimes obscure information. Are you ever fascinated by yourself in a way where you're like, fuck, how did I even know that? Jesus. I, I don't know, fascinated or embarrassed somehow. I mean, the, the funny thing you said, funny is you talk about editing. I didn't add those in. In fact, I took a lot of those out. Right. That actually happened more often in the thing. And I was like, there's too much of me. And it looks show offy to a very small group of people and embarrassing to a much wider group. But so I, a lot of the, there were way more of those where I, me just, I just knew, you know, my brain is just cluttered with this stuff. So I did throw it in 
pretty often. And I don't mean to embarrass you. What I'm getting, what I want to convey to people is you seem to really know your stuff. And the, and the other part of that is when someone in your book is sort of struggling to pinpoint something and you say it, often their printed reaction is, yes, exclamation point. Like, <laughs> oh, a kindred spirit. You get it. You understand. You're, you know, I'm not talking to someone who doesn't know. That's all I wanted to convey. So you, you're whatever we've been talking about, for the last 20 years, you've been fully immersed in Dylan to a nerdy, by your own accounting, nerdy extent. Is that correct? Absolutely true. And I think, you know, a lot of people have said nice things about the book. And one of the things they say is that, you know, these like these people who have in some cases never been interviewed, in some cases been interviewed a lot, but barely ever said anything of substance about Dylan, you know, are going on for pages and pages with these intricate stories of the time where I was backstage in Mississippi and this happened. And to the extent I have a trick for doing that, well, it's not a trick. It's just, it's just that I know all the stuff. It's like, you know, people, these musicians, they understand that A, it's going to be primarily about the music. I'm not just going to call them up and be like, so what's Bob Dylan really like? <laughs> um, and the, yeah, they're like, I know I've done my research. I know my stuff. And so, you know, you'd like, when I go back and listen to like a rough, you know, just the raw audio, it often starts like, a little tentative. The first five minutes, they're just giving me the same two stories they've given elsewhere. Yeah. And then, yeah, there's often a moment where I like throw in something like that and they sort of – it clicks in. They're like, oh, like, oh, we're going deep. Yes. OK. Yes. I, di- I didn't know we were like going beyond my like one anecdote I tried out yeah. whenever anyone asked me about Bob Dylan. And that's often where it starts getting good. It's, it's remarkable. It's a remarkable read in that regard because I pick up on that. They get it. They get that you're in and it's not going to be a superficial chat. So now we've got to go from Weird Al to Bob Dylan, who, you know, Weird Al has been very outspoken about, uh, or rather candid, I should say, about those who do and don't give him permission to do parodies. To my knowledge, I don't think he's ever parodied a Bob Dylan song per se. He's used imagery. Wait, did he do subterranean? No, I'm I'm blanking. I think he's done some stuff with the video imagery. Has he ever covered a Dylan song or a parody to Dylan song? No, but what you're thinking of is close. He did what he calls a style parody, which yes. is in the same style, and it was of subterranean homesick blues. And in fact, he did parody the famous music video yes. with the cards and everything. So that's pretty close, but it's not a direct parody where he's literally singing the exact same meter and and tune. I have a feeling Bob would have said no. Because like I say, Weird Al will ask permission before he does a proper parody. And he's been very outspoken uh, about people who say no to him. Like Lady Gaga initially, I think, said no. Mm -hmm. And a couple other people. Any, you're a research guy. Any, any sense that Weird Al approached Bob? Now, now I'm curious. (laughs) My guess, I mean, he, Bob might have said no, but my guess, frankly, is that Weird Al wouldn't have asked just because the sad truth of it is in, the entire lifespan of Weird Al's career, Bob Dylan has not had any yes. "quote unquote" hits. Yes, yes. like yes, weird, like as we say, Weird Al parodies Miley Cyrus. You know, he doesn't parody. Things have changed. Although I wish he would. That's true. He does contemporary hit songs uh, usually. Okay, that's fair enough. All right, I just anyway, let's get from Weird Al to your, your obsession with Bob, with Bob Dylan. You say it's been going around twenty years. What clicked for you about Bob Dylan's music uh, that made you dive in so deep? So it was. Probably my origin story is a concert I went to. In 2004, My I, I think my dad had a couple records on vinyl that he kind of listened to. Dylan and I kind of listened to him and I don't know, I liked him okay, I guess. But somehow I saw Dylan was coming to Chicago. 
I, I conned my dad somehow into buying tickets for us to go. And I, I went to this show, Aragon Ballroom, uh, March 2004. And the funny thing about it is I'm not even sure I liked the show that much. Huh. Like it was a classic thing where I went. I didn't recognize any of the songs. I found out later he played Like a Rolling Stone. I mean, I, I at least knew that one, but I didn't recognize it in the moment. But like huh. I was intrigued enough to know that – to quote the – Battle of Thimman, something was happening. I didn't know what it was, but I I could tell something was happening at least. Like, you know, I had seen, I think just a year before, I'd gone with my friend and his mom to see like the Simon and Garfunkel reunion tour. Right. And they sang all the hits and they sounded exactly like you wanted them to sound and everyone sings along and has the lighters and it was fun. I liked it. But like, so I probably expected the Bob Dylan show to be like that. And it was so different that I was so intrigued. And so then what I ended up doing, again, music nerd, I found the set list online. I didn't. I did not know yet that you could literally get a tape of that show. I yeah. had no idea. But I downloaded off of uh, LimeWire, which really dates this, every studio version of all the tracks. And so I had like a playlist in my Winamp. And so I would just listen to the Winamp playlist of those oh, sixteen man. or seventeen. We're going songs. way back with the technology. Oh, <laughs> I know this is. I don't even need to say two thousand four because this is all within like a one year window. What about my Winamp player? I wonder what the hell happened to that thing. I just stopped. It's yeah. funny you just stop using the things, and then someone brings it up. You're like, oh yeah, I use that every day. Yeah, I, I know. I was I was obsessed. I just abandoned with my Winamp. Stopped, and yeah, one day iTunes existed, and that was the end of Winamp. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and I ended up. For years, I thought, because during that first show encore, he did three songs, Like a Rolling Stone, All Along the Watchtower, and Cats in the Well. And I assumed that those were all three hits of equal stature. <laughs> the widely beloved Cats in the Well, <laughs> a, a huge fan favorite. <laughs> it wasn't until years later that I was like, oh, no, that's just, that's just Bob being weird. No one wants to hear that. So the show confounded you, but your, yes. in, your internet research after compelled you. Then mm-hmm. what happens? What happens for you? Because I had no. It's not a similar trajectory, actually. I will say it's different. But let's go. Let's start with you. Because all I want to say quickly is, when I was a kid, I would take CDs or records out of the library, and one of them. And my cousin had Bob Dylan's greatest hits as well, like the aforementioned cousin. So I was aware of him. And as you get into the Beatles, you you keep coming across his name, Bob Dylan. And then if you're like me, you get into Beastie Boys and they're sampling him and mentioning him. And you're like, who is this guy? And then for me, it was time out of mind, uh, randomly getting it at, a, at the University of Guelph uh, newspaper in the review section. I'm like, what is it? Oh, Bob Dylan. And I didn't know if it was old or new because I don't know if you, the album cover is such that the rear photo, he looks like young, I feel like. It must be whatever, airbrush. But anyway, then that just kickstarted a whole like... I'm going to get everything. And I started with John Wesley Harding, uh, which I believe, uh, who is it? Somebody else also, that was their, was it Dickie Betts? No, I can't remember who it was. Dickie Landry? Somebody. Oh, uh, uh, Ben Montench, I think. Ben Montench, that's correct. Yeah, he gets, that's right. He hears it in a dorm room and that's the record that compels him. I related to him. Anyway, all this to say, it's one, it's usually, I think for people like us, it's like one little small thing. And then it opens up this whole universe. Did you have that? Like you did what you did there. And sorry, I, I rambled. My question was, <laughs> how does that show and that little bit of research lead you to where you are today? Do you remember what happened? It was just one one step at a time. Like I, I can't really explain it, honestly. But within a year, it was like March 2004, Bob Dylan plays this show. I see. I, I don't really understand 
literally a year later, Bob Dylan plays five shows in Chicago and I'm at four of them. So it was fast. Yes. This sort of ner- nerding out, you know, I remember there was a internet forum called the Dylan Pool, which was the uh, the, bi- the big one at the time that I got that got involved in. And yeah, it's, I mean, it was kind of like what happened with Weird Al. Once I decide I'm, I'm interested in something, I go, I go way too far. That's fine. This is this is who you are. This is kind of who I am. Uh, I think for for sure. Uh, do you have a sense at this point, an estimate of how many times you've seen Dylan since two thousand four? Uh, I don't have an estimate. I have an exact number, which is thirty five. Yeah. So I'm at like thirty seven, thirty eight. I had I had to write it down because for some reason in my memory I was spouting off to people. I'm like, oh, I've seen him sixty times, seventy times. <laughs> I'm like, why do I think that? So I actually cataloged it. In the last few years, I'm like, it's around, it's somewhere under 40. I can't, I didn't pull it up. But what is wrong with us? People are wondering, listening right yeah. now. What is it for you about going to see him? Because I always will see him in batches. You mentioned four of the Chicago shows. I was just telling someone on Twitter yesterday, because as we're speaking, Ray, very significant news came out just yesterday. It started to leak this week that, uh, and maybe we, the writing was on the wall for some of us that uh, this could be it, that that Bob might be retiring from the road. He's put a, unusually for the Rough and Rowdy Ways tour, he put an end time, 2024, as that'll be the end of that tour. So where some of us, I think, are having these, uh-oh, bittersweet, sad, like, sorry, you must agree, Ray, it would make sense for a, a fellow who is uh what is he right now? Eighty-two years old. Eighty-two, yeah. To to start to think, ponder, <laughs> slowing down. Um, how are you feeling about that announcement? Before I get too much further, yeah, it was a blow. And when you read the fine print, there's all sorts of wiggle room for him. You know, sources. Wiggle, 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 light, wiggle, wiggle room. Is what <laughs> I there read. you go. <laughs> Speaking of the widely beloved Under the Red Sky album, <laughs> there's some. I think a parody of the news article suggested that he was going to start and end every show with. This uh, relatively obscure song of his, Wiggle Wiggle. I, sorry, did you see that? Did you share that? I feel like that I... That was... I created that parody, You yeah. created that parody. Sorry. Good job, Ray. <laughs> You're very good with the social media fun with Bob as well, which is a, a new phenomenon between you and some other younger younger people. But yeah, it was a blow. You, you took it hard? I, initially, and then as you say, the more you think about it, A, there's wiggle room, and B, the guy's 82. Like, <laughs> the idea that he's going to tour at this pace for 30 more years defies... Uh, well, any sort of logic or biology, yeah. frankly. So, yeah, I'm I'm not honestly the only. I think the only super substantive thing is that tickets are going to get even harder to get now that this is sort of circulating. Yeah, that's fair. So somebody, and I don't know who they were. Uh, I said I, I tweeted yesterday, like I'm going to go see. I'm going to see Bob Dylan live again. Like I, I'm going to do that. I I uh, did not go uh, during the heart of this pandemic because. I don't know, traveling, whatnot seemed weird. And I always was like, ah, because I don't know about you. And I think it's, it seems to be the case that you, when he's around, do you see him in batches? Because I was telling someone, uh, on Twitter who was like, I think, by the way, I think he's going to head your way. He loves the Maritimes, which is not my way, by the way. That's all the way across <laughs> the country. He loves Ontario or what? I don't know what they said. I'm like, yeah. And then I mentioned like in August of 20 of 2002, uh, I saw him in Toronto, Saskatoon, Fargo, Calgary, or Edmonton and Calgary. And those were really, that's the Charlie Sexton, Larry Campbell doing yeah. backup vocals uh, version of the band, like singing and, oh my God. Oh, so, sorry, that's like my sweet spot. 
of that that era for me is a sweet spot. But my I'm point jealous is, of you because I just missed that by a couple years. Yeah, those tapes. Well, that that that's that's right around really when the fever started. I'd seen him two or three times before that, I think, and then I just now we're up to close to forty. So something there. We got to explain that to people in a moment. But I just want to finish my stupid question, which is. Are you a person like me who tends to be like, okay, I'm not just going to one show. I'm going to I'm going to follow him around just as much as I possibly can without losing my shirt. Are you a person like that? Definitely, I will see them in batches, although I got super complacent living in New York City for a decade because you could see them in batches without following him around. He would do like 10 nights at the Beacon Theater in a row, so you're like, "All right, I'll just take the subway for I don't think I I don't think I ever literally did all 10 because I wasn't made of money, but I would yeah. do 5 or 6." Right. But yeah, now nowadays I will, you know, if he he hasn't I'm hoping he'll do a New England run on this leg, in which case I will see some of those shows and then maybe go to go to New York or something. The the most dramatic one I did Again, back when I was younger and had no nothing else, uh, no other obligations was I in 06, I think he was doing a summer ballpark tour, like in these like minor league like ballparks in rinky dink, tiny towns. And uh, I saw, I don't know, four or five shows in some. Is that the one I'm interrupting uh, Ray to show him my mounted uh, poster of the Bob Dylan show Uh, with Willie Nelson and John Mellencamp. And this was the first time he did a... Sorry, I saw him play a ballpark in Fargo in 2002, and it's the happiest I've ever seen him. He and the band were he, giggling on stage. Giggling. Every summer for a while, he was doing these ballparks, and they, he was never playing Wrigley Field or whatever. It was in, like, I saw one in Comstock, Michigan. It was always, like, minor league places, and they and they were great. Yeah. He did one in, I think, 04, 05, 06, and maybe maybe 07, which might be that. Well, this is oh, um, no, this is 09, actually. I just looked at the 09, thing. It's okay. hard. My eyes are going, but I think that's right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, – he just likes playing these small ballparks. And uh, and it's interesting. I was really up close for this one. Yeah, he loves baseball, Bob, is what I interrupted you to say, basically. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny because the vibe is so different than, like, now where he plays these, like, very old, cool theaters, like these old movie houses, which is, like, amazing, but it's very sort of pristine and serious compared to seeing him at a minor league ballpark where, like, you know, you're eating a hot dog and having some nacho chips. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different different vibe than a rough and rowdy race tour. Well, the head of that, that – so the tour you're referring to was, like, a full-fledged tour of Little League parks. And I think the two things. Yeah, I think every, every single every single one was. I there. think the two things I saw were kind of one offs. Um, oh, so okay. that's what I mean. I, I feel like that Fargo show was, I think, the first time he'd done it uh, in two thousand two, and then that subsequently led to the tour, the the actual like concentrated tour of ballparks. Sorry, man, I keep interrupting you because I'm excited, and I don't mean to do that. Uh, what was my point? No, this is what I like to <laughs> this do. This is my point. So yeah, batches. We go to see him in batches. What's wrong with us? Why do we need to see him? Over and over again. What's your feeling on that? Because some people listening might be like, are these guys okay? Why do they? My wife sometimes like, you really got to go. She, and I've draw, I've brought her to a couple. I saw him do two nights in Detroit and then five shows mm-hmm. in Toronto. And I forget, I'm neglecting, it might be 2006 or something like that. I can't remember the years. It was. It, do you, you might know this, Ray. You know everything. Do you hear tell of uh, Dylan and uh, Jack White joining Dylan once to do Ball and Biscuit? Uh, yeah, that yeah, that happened in I think '04. I think that yeah. was later on the same tour that I first saw him, though I wouldn't have known about it until later. Yeah, so yeah, that was the, that was the same run that another night uh, in Detroit 
they did uh, Bob Dylan covered Get Out of Denver by Bob Seger for the first and only So time. He, I think he did three nights in Detroit. So by, by just for context, uh, Ray, I'm from Ontario originally, and I lived in Guelph, Ontario, which is about four-hour drive to Detroit, uh, five-hour drive to Detroit. And so I saw two of the three nights, and the first night I saw, the second night of the three-run, I'm pretty sure it was a three-run uh, stint. You would know this, correct me if I'm wrong. Because you know everything. My point is, uh, yeah, he did the the Bob Seger song the day the governor declared it Bob Seger Day, and then then and then my wife happened to be in town for work, uh, so we decided to go to the the third, I believe, the third night, his last night in Detroit, let's say. And I says to my wife, I says, uh, I bet you any money, either Eminem or Jack White are going to show up tonight <laughs> on stage. And she's like, What? Soothsayer that I am. Jack White appears. I'm like, I told you. And then they do, for those listening and don't know, Ball Misk is a White Stripes song. So of all the... That's the craziest part about it, it in a way. It's like if Jack White came out and they jammed Rainy Day Women or something, yeah, okay, that's cool. But the fact that they did a Stripes song well, I, is nuts. I had seen the White Stripes accidentally a couple of times. Uh, one time opening for Sleater Kinney and before they were kind of huge. And then the next time opening for the Rolling Stones in Toronto. And they routinely would do... Bob Dylan songs and good, cool, like lovesick. And I feel like one more cup of coffee maybe was one of them. And like clearly, you know, a a fan. Jack White seems interesting. Anyway, uh, and then he did like a weird thing after that Detroit run. He did shows in Toronto, but different venues. He did an arena, a small midsize arena. Then he did a really small room called the Phoenix. Then he did uh, the Cool House. So I just saw him again five times at least. Uh, on that run. So, again, I'm sorry. I'm all over the place. I'm like a Bob Dylan song. My point that's is... That's what he did. That's what he did in Chicago that first time I saw him. And I didn't... Again, I wasn't a big fan, so I didn't realize this. But he played, I think, five nights there, too, in all five different venues. Yeah. Which is sort of amazing. And also, like, what a pain in the ass for the crew. Like, as opposed <laughs> to just setting up in one room for five nights and leaving the equipment there, he's making them haul it all over town yeah. every single night. But, really, uh, who does that? Like what a remarkable way of doing a residency in a city. I'm at. We, we should do different venues. I don't even know. Sometimes, do you think these are his ideas? Whose ideas are these? Do you figure? No one ever really knows. That's yeah. one of the mysteries with him. But one of the trends from all these interviews I did from the book is Bob Dylan is more in charge of things than sometimes people realize. I think he makes a lot of decisions. So I would guess this probably was his idea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen. I think we've now uh, established to people. That we uh, we love this man, and we will go to great lengths to see him, to support him. Let's uh, jump ahead now. To I've been doing all sorts of visual aids for Ray and I. Everyone, you can't see these, so I'm just holding up this book now. It's called "Pledging My Time: Conversations with Bob Dylan uh, Band Members." Ray, first of all, where did the idea for this book, it, by the way, ingenious idea for this book, come about? So I. And a sort of a pandemic project was I started this Substack uh, about Bob Dylan concerts called Flagging Down the Double E's. Just you know, like a lot of us, I had a lot of free time. I was sitting at home, um, <laughs> and so I it wasn't it wasn't mostly interviews. It was mostly just me writing about old shows and recommending you got to listen to this performance of Watchtower from this show. But after a few months, I interviewed I I, I came across this one set list of just a show I was considering writing about where. The saxophone player named uh, Dickie Landry sat in for every single song. And I was like, wow, like that's wild. I've never heard this show. It's weird to hear like 2003 era Dylan with like sax all over every song. 
And I, like, I've never heard of the guy. So I just like Googled him. He had a website. And I just on a lark. I sent him a note like, hey, do you want to talk about it? Um, he did. We spoke. I ran it in the newsletter. It was immediately the most popular newsletter I'd run, even though this is, again, not a, a guy only met Bob once. He never even like spoke to him before or after. And not he's sort of famous in the avant-garde scene Played with the Philip Glass. The, but yeah. like, he's not a household yeah. name. And I had a lot of fun doing it. A lot of people seemed to like it, which sort of surprised me given how niche it seemed to me. So then I started interviewing a few more for the newsletter and that turned into a few more. And after I had done maybe 10 in the newsletter, you know, I started thinking, you know, if I could do another 30 or 40 of these, like it, it could be a book. So then I started sort of quietly interviewing people just for the book on the side of the newsletter. And I did that, did that for a couple of years and now the book's out. So – what are your primary revelations, if you can do pr- primary revelations uh, after completing a work like this? Because I find it utterly fascinating. You've done it in chronological order. Uh, the heart of the book, I would argue, is probably Rolling Thunder Review 1980s sort of stuff. Is that fair? Yeah, it's probably true, largely because 60s, he had very few band members. Yeah. He was solo, and then he basically played with one band, most of whom are gone. So, yeah, it it really get, kicks in. I mean, I, I have some people from the folk scene, you know, one of the guys in Peter Paul and Mary and stuff like that, just to sort of have some 60s stuff. But, yeah, it, it really kicks into gear. The 60s stuff is utterly – I know it's uh, – like I say, it's maybe not as much as uh, particularly Rolling Thunder and the 80s stuff. And, again, I think that's context. Some of those folks are gone. I, I don't know. I assume for some of these folks – Memory jogging in the moment must be, was it a challenge to get them to be like, yeah, I kind of know what you're talking about. I, I, Oh, yeah, that that happened all the time. And yeah. again, that's where having the sort of details in front of me to jog their memory. You were at this venue. Oh, oh yeah, the one at that venue. I'm, you know, yeah. or you had just done, it was a week after you played for the Pope. And oh, right. Okay. And after that, this happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, sometimes they just <laughs> don't remember your ass. I'm asking extremely, you know, specific questions there. You know, for every one, I get some amazing story. There's probably one that I cut because it didn't really go anywhere. Yeah. I feel like those of us who follow Dylan, I forget who says it. It might be Benmont again. Um, someone describes him as uh, Dylan as having all these different seasons and that, how they appreciate that. Um, I might be misquoting who said that actually, now that I think about it. Sorry. But my point is, I get that impression here. I get that impression that everyone in your book um, had uh, encountered a different Dylan. For them, the experience could have been hours, it could have been weeks, it could have been months, touring, years. Uh, so everyone had a different impression. Do you have an overall sort of perspective on who this guy was uh, based on all your interviews? Um, who this guy is, I should say? I mean, it. one interesting thing you talked to asked about sort of revelations, one that jumped out at me from talking to all these people is given that Bob Dylan is obviously so private, almost no fans have ever met him, just how personable he is. Like with the people, it's very hard to get into his circle on any level. But like once you're a musician, the number of sort of backstage stories of like, you know, some zany thing that Bob said or goofing or he makes some joke or just hanging out. There's so much more of that than I expected because, you know, you hear these sort of rumors of, oh, you're not allowed to look him in the eyes backstage yeah. or stuff like that. You never you never quite know how much to believe that sort of thing. And so I sort of thought, OK, he's – you know, he probably doesn't really hang out with the band members, at least not since like Rolling Thunder, you know. But yeah, but it sort of was sort of amazing just like all these people for all their sort of awe of him as a writer and musician – 
just the amount of sort of hanging out on the bus or something ridiculous that happened in some small town in Iowa <laughs> type stories. I, would, I don't know. I was a little surprised. I mentioned earlier that after I was exposed to music um, from my by my cousin, particularly the Beatles, I wanted to know more. It wasn't enough. And if I think on it now, I think I really wanted to humanize them. Again, I don't think that was conscious. I just think it, I, I've told this story a few times that I was reading a book as a kid about the Beatles and discovered that uh, in an early uh, a tour, Ringo had to bow out because he was ill. I think he had a stomach flu or something like that. I remember reading that as a kid and thinking, what? I thought these guys were heroes. They just get sick. They get, they did something happens. Like it really, that was a moment for me of a real clarity. Oh, these are people. They make mistakes. They do this. They do that. Um, do you think part of your, I don't know if it was a goal of yours. You've obviously really humanized this, this mysterious figure. Do you come away feeling like you have a better sense of him as a person? Yeah, I would say so. You know, I'm, there's still, I'm sure, an inner Bob Dylan that's private and he seals off from everyone except his family or something. It's, so I don't want to say I've, like, pierced the veil entirely or whatever. But, but yeah, there's just sort of it's the accumulation of all these anecdotes and stories and small moments that all these musicians, oh, he was hanging out with my daughter and there's this amazing story or – you know, my wife needed this thing and he or or like there's, you know, one where the, a crew member dies. And so Bob loans his plane to like all the rest of the guys to go to the funeral. You know, just yeah. these sort of tiny things that meant a lot to these people that kept coming up again and again. The, I think it's the Dickie Landry story uh, where correct me if I'm wrong, Ray, uh, but I believe it's that story where Dickie is friendly with Tony Garnier, uh, Dylan's longtime bass player. And uh, there's an arrangement to meet at a restaurant. With and Dylan shows up, and he, and this is so. This is what did you say? It was two thousand three or something like that. I think that's yeah. correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Dylan Spring of three. Dylan shows up at the restaurant and he sees strangers, and he's going to leave. He decides he doesn't want to. What is Dick? Is it Dickie who says? Am I yeah. right? Dickie yeah. says yes. This is Dickie Landry, New Orleans. Dickie Dickie says uh, he you know he doesn't like meeting new people. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> and that made me for some reason that made me chuckle a little bit. I mean, to me, I know that I, that's my vibe. Uh, from Bob, but they get to talking, and when Dickie starts dropping Philip Glass's name and mentions, you know, we were plumbers, Dylan's like, what? He was a plumber, and he's intrigued by Dickie so much so that he the, the story goes from Dickie being like, here's a guy who doesn't uh, like to meet new people, to Dylan saying, what are you doing tomorrow night? Play with us. That's bonkers. That is a that is a dynamic shift. I know you're just reciting uh, his words. But even as a narrative, that's strange. It went from like very, very, I'm leaving. There's someone I don't know to this person I don't know is going to play with me tomorrow night. What do you learn about a guy like this who, who is capable of such multitudes of like standoffish to we're jamming? And I mean, I believe it's the same story where Tony suggests Dickie leave the stage because a folk song's coming up, might not need any saxophone. And Dylan's mad that he's like, Dickie, where'd you go? And Dickie's like, well, Tony, Tony Garnier told me to leave. No, it's my band. Like, all of it is very, that's a, one of the most fascinating uh, interactions. Sorry, I've, have I given, is this too much? I should have said spoiler. No, that, no, I love it. Like I said, that was the first one I ever did. And I was like blown away by this, by this story. And I think you're right that it, in a way that sort of in one dinner, I didn't think of it like this, but in one dinner that kind of encapsulates the whole thing. Bob Dylan starts off, literally walks into this restaurant, sees a table, some people he knows, some people he does not know is about to turn around and just be like, nope, I'm not I'm doing out, that, yeah. right? 
So that's one side of it. Ex- extremely private, for sure. Doesn't want people asking about Blown in the Wind. But then within the course of an hour or two, he's inviting this musician that he has never met or it sounds like never even heard of before to come sit in with him for an entire show for which, again, in typical Dylan fashion, they didn't rehearse. Yeah. There wasn't – all right. They didn't even give Dickie the set list. They're just like, all right, go on stage and we'll play some songs. Dickie's like, I don't even know these songs. And he's just winging it, which is extremely typical. So you have a whole fan base, or rather, you have a a segment of his supposed fan base. Sorry, I I just want to be careful I don't come across condescending in this regard. Because you yourself said you went to a show, the first show, and you're like, I don't know what he's doing. I don't know what these songs are. Mm -hmm. You have this component of the listening audience or the, the lore is... If you go see Bob Dylan between uh, 1997 and now, you may not recognize the songs he's playing because he changes everything. But then as you delve into that era in particular, you realize the musicians themselves literally don't know what song he might play. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers in the 80s, he'll just call out a thing or say just before they go on stage, like, "Uh, let's do that song. Can we do I, I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine? And they're like, sure. And they just go. What does that tell you about him and the moment? Uh, his his interest in the moment. Because that story we were just reciting, that's all a moment. That's, a, that's a, a few moments in time where he just makes a call. What is his... Sorry, I, I should ask him this question. But what do you think, <laughs> Ray, is his relationship with the moment and the time and... Just going for it. It's very strange and inspiring to me that someone can operate this way in front of who says it. It could be 10,000 people. It could be 70,000 people. He's the same. Rehearsal, no rehearsal. We're just going to try something. What do you learn about a guy who does stuff like this? One interesting trend or theme that came across a number of interviews was I think I counted it up at one point. Seven different people across all decades compared playing with him to jazz. Yes. And one said explicitly, I know he's he's not he's not a jazz artist. He's not Miles Davis. He's not like he's not working in the genre of jazz. But just that sort of being in the moment, having to follow him, having to listen really closely to what he's doing. He's listening closely to what you're doing. You're pivoting. Every night is different. Every time you play, even a song you play every night might be a little different. It's I hadn't made that comparison myself because, again, he's not literally playing the genre of jazz. But it came up again and again, including by a few pl- players like Jim Keltner has a jazz background, a couple others who literally play with jazz people, but said – one guy said this was the best jazz gig I ever played. And he says, people look at me like I'm crazy because I actually play with jazz musicians. But he said this was the one that was the most in the moment and jazz-like even though we're playing you know, rock and folks type material. But I think it is jazz and I think it is punk. I mean since I've seen him, that's those are the things that come to me. Because some people look at my main areas of interest, uh, I suppose, and wonder how Dylan fits into it sometimes. Um, and I think it's really about that that sense of freedom. Does that make sense? Like, he is a free man, and he takes the stage like a free man, and that the songs don't even cage him in. The expectations haven't caged him in. Does that sense of freedom come through as you're talking to people? Uh, like, the sense that he's just gonna he's going to do what he wants to do? It absolutely does. And I think a lot of the musicians told me that in some ways this was the most challenging gig they've ever played for that reason. But it was also the most rewarding. Like I remember Stan Lynch, another one of the heartbreakers, he he said something to the extent of like, you know, 
I li- I've lived a nice life. I don't I need to redo it. But like if there was one section I would do over again, it was my time with Bob Dylan. This is a guy who played with Tom Petty for like 30, 40 years. Yeah. He played with Bob Dylan for one year. Yes. I mean, it's a tiny sliver of a career with, you know, another super famous guy much longer. But because of that, you know, that sentiment came across a lot that just it's a stressful gig. There is no way around it. I mean, it is it's be much easier to just go on stage and play like Rolling Stone the same play. It's the same exact way you played it the last 30 nights. You know, you can sort of fall asleep or think about what you're going to get to eat after. That's what a lot of, you know, people of Bob Dylan's cohort do. Yeah. But if you're, you know, a lot of these people are like real musicians, musician types. They're not the sort who want to do that. And they they love that freedom. Yeah, Stan's enthusiasm for Bob comes off the page. I I can just tell he really loved that in in that moment. One of the things I noticed, you mentioned that seven people, at least seven people mentioned jazz. Uh, One of the things that made me kind of chuckle is um, for every chapter where someone's like, oh, my God, what a remarkable musician Bob is. Fantastic piano player, remarkable guitar player. There's someone else who says, you know, he can't really play guitar. Uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> is that just case by case? Like, what is the consensus there? Because I try to learn. I sing uh, Bob Dylan songs to my daughter and I take a guitar up there and I learn about the instrument just by learning one of his songs. You know, like uh, one of the songs I sing is uh, to make you feel my love and the transcription or the, the whatever I'm using as a reference point. I don't know, there's like 18 chords in it or something. It's bizarre how many things there are to put this very straightforward song, relatively straightforward song across. You you mentioned musicians, musicians there. Um, What's your takeaway from that notion that for one person, he's the most unique and remarkable musician. For another, he can't really do it. What, What is that about? I mean, I think they're probably both true, not just at different time periods, but probably at different shows from night to night. I mean, yeah. you think of him like as an acoustic player. I think he's phenomenal and, and people would generally agree on that. But then you think of him playing electric guitar and like, you know, especially in the 90s, like he would have these amazing, you know, Campbell and Sexton next to him and somehow Bob Dylan is doing every single solo and yeah. they're all like two notes long and just take forever. Yeah. You know, in, in Chronicles, he has that section where he like tries to describe his guitar technique as math and like the more you try to figure it out, the less sense it makes. <laughs> and it seems like it seems like a long-winded explanation of why you just play the same three notes over and over again. Yeah. But, but maybe he is thinking about it and like – as with so many things, he's not going to do what you want him to do. And I think some of the musicians are like, it's such a different way of thinking about it. And some of the musicians are like, like I think maybe Winston Watson again was like at one point Bob Dylan brought Jerry Garcia on and like Bob Dylan was doing most of the solos. And Winston's like, Bob, like Jerry Garcia's right there. Why are you soloing? <laughs> I think he's a gunslinger though because there are yeah. clips of him doing um, uh, Time Out of Mind era songs with Eric Clapton. Who, whatever. I'm not going to go on and on about Eric Clapton right now because, sorry, I'm not. A, I was never a big fan, and he's hard to talk about right now because uh, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But anyway, my point is, uh, those clips are remarkable. I, it's a live thing. Yeah. I think in Madison Square Garden. Is that right? I think it's in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was at. Um, I think one of Clapton's like crossroads. Yeah. You know, events. Yeah, and he comes out and he's doing all the soloing, and uh, yeah. certainly around uh, uh, modern times. Uh, and if you saw him live in that period, Dylan, I mean, the repetition of a figure was a big thing. Like he'll just be bum, 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 and it just keeps going and going. That's all he kind of does. Uh, although at that point, I guess he would have been playing piano. Anyway, sorry, I'm all over the place. I think it's great. And I don't know how else to explain it. Are we apologists? Do you think there's a problem with us where we're just like, everything he does, it's good. 
I don't really have a problem. <laughs> I feel that way. Like I have a bit of a. I will admit my major Dylan blind spot is the '80s. I still have trouble. If I were given a quiz, I'd be like, I, uh, I it's still a bit of a lost zone for me, even mm-hmm. though I got more immersed. But I don't think he has a bad period. Am I nuts? How do you feel? I would say he has <laughs> bad. I mean, he certainly has bad albums. Yeah. I mean, I look. Ninety-nine percent of the world would absolutely call me a Bob Dylan apologist. You know, nine, you know, ninety-nine percent of the world would say, you know, "Blood on the Tracks" was the last good one or something. <laughs> yeah. um, but no, there are definitely bad periods. There are definitely bad concerts. There are definitely bad albums. But I think what's maybe unique about him is even in the quote-unquote bad periods, there's something to gain. It can be interesting. It can be intriguing. Even things where it looks like maybe he tried something and didn't succeed. Those are sort of fascinating and fun. Um, so I think that's what sort of us, us super fans, super nerds, you know, come back to and why he's sort of more interesting than, I don't know, maybe some of his other peers yeah. where like a bad album is just a bad album. They never need to listen to it again. I often put on the, the quote unquote bad ones. I like I like I feel like they're more insightful in a way because to me, for some of them, I'm like, I don't know this one as well. So it's like having a new Dylan record. When when uh, Springtime in New York came out, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that period I I don't know as well in a way. I kind of vaguely know it. And then I dug in. I'm like, holy shit. Uh, you know, the, 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 the bootleg material on that, I'm sorry, I'm motioning to my record collection, uh, is just, uh, just outstanding. Anyway, I think he's just an endlessly fascinating guy. You talked about some trends among people. One of the other things I, that made me sort of uh, take note the number of musicians who say they were offered a gig with him and turned it down, but then called back. You mentioned seven said jazz. I'd say three, four musicians in the book say... At it, least, yeah, it's gotta be. What is that about? What do you think that's about? I mean, I think in some ways the more interesting part of that is what is the is the call back. Like, for instance... <laughs> Um, Alan, like Alan Pasqua, who is a, a, pian- a piano player who, like a lot of people in the book, which is another interesting trend, comes and goes. This guy tours with Bob Dylan for an entire year, over 100 concerts in 1978. Finally, it ends. They don't talk. The end, right? Except just a couple of years ago, he gets this call. Hey, Bob Dylan's recording this song, which turns out to be Murder Most Foul. Do you want to come and play piano on it? And Pasqua is kind of like, oh, like I just, you know, I just got off the road. I don't know. Like maybe I got a thing like because the guy I should say, they said, do you want to come play piano on it like tomorrow? And he's like, ah, maybe I can do it next week, you know. And the guy's like – and I, his, Dylan's manager whoever's like, OK, I'll, you know, I'll get back to you. But Pasqua hangs up the phone. He's like, look, Dylan, there's no next week. If I don't show up tomorrow, like I, I'm not on the track. It's just going to move on without me. I mean again, we talk about Bob Dylan living in the moment. That's how it is. So he calls back and he says, never mind, I'll cancel whatever I had going on tomorrow. I'll be there. And yeah, that happens in terms of people joining the band all over the place. And I think the, like I say, what interests me is just everyone sort of knows, like, if you don't jump on it now, he's going to move on. He's not, the opportunity, he's so spontaneous, the opportunity is going to pass. So people call back and say, yeah, I'll do it. I wonder if there, it's, it's really fascinating, the people who say, well, I'm busy, I can't. I can't actually do it. I'm doing this with so-and-so. I can't. And then they have the kind of, wait a minute, like you say, the, the, the realization that they should. Do you think it's fear initially that's telling them no? Like, no, I don't want to. Because the, the, there's at least three people who call. The callback is the funniest part of it. I yeah, hung yeah, up yeah. and then I called them. I realized what I said and I called back and said, yeah, no, I'll be there. That's funny in itself. And uh, the fact that so many people did that, <laughs> I don't know. Do you think they're just intimidated uh, among other things? 
There's probably some of that too. I mean, another one who has that story is this blues guitarist named Duke Robillard. And he said, you know, he had heard that Dylan was a difficult person to work for, um, partly because everything's changing, partly because he will not give you specific direction. Yeah. So like the word was out and Duke Robillard keeps getting calls to join the band and he keeps sort of saying no. And part of it is that, yeah, he was like, I've heard bad things or just that it's a very stressful gig. But yeah, then then he does say yes. Um, so I think there is some intimidation about Bob's stature and just there's some – like I say, I'm sure this sort of gig wouldn't be for everyone. You know, If you do want to just play the hits and sort of coast and catch, cash the checks, this is not going to be a gig for you. And, and Duke's someone who ends up finally playing on Time Out of Mind and then does take the gig and it doesn't – I'm not going to spoil it because I want people to read the book and I feel like I've done too many spoilers. Sorry about that, Ray. But uh, it doesn't go well. Um, and that's fascinating and weird, uh, the way he tells it as well. So anyway, all, I just want to say it's a really fascinating book. I did have a process question for you because I start to get the vibe as I'm reading it that you talk to someone like Keltner or someone who's like got a vast network of, uh, fellow musicians who might know Bob. Did you end up, uh, getting connected to people because of the people you ended up talking to quite a bit? Like you'll talk to one. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, for sure. I mean, and it wasn't just I mean, part of it is literally like getting the people's emails because these are generally not public people who have their own websites. But I think a bigger part of it is them recommending me, them saying, hey, I know you get probably interview requests about Dylan for 40 years, all of which you said no to because but this guy like he knows his stuff. He's good. You should talk to him. I mean, that was the first few interviews getting those was so difficult. And it never exactly got easy, but it got easier. And it was partly because of that. People would point me to other people. Like one one interview I really like is this with this guy named Luther Ricks, who I'd never heard of. He was a core member of the Rolling Thunder review band in 1975, but he was not in the movie. So he's not really on film because he was older and just doing stuff. He wasn't going to the film stuff. And he's like a percussionist. So yeah. it's a little hard to pick out what he's doing on the tracks and stuff. It's like, I'd never even heard of the guy, even though he's a member of the Rolling Thunder Review Band. And after I talked to Rob Stoner, Rob's like, hey, this guy who lives down the road from me, you know, in upstate New York, like he was in the band too, Luther Ricks. I'm like, who? And he, and he, so he connected me. Luther, I don't think has ever literally done an interview, even though he was on the road with Dylan for one of his most famous tours for months. I'm thinking, but and I never would have found him or talked to him without that. So that sort of thing definitely happened. You should be very proud of that. That is to me like the highest compliment for other people to recommend you uh, to others. And I will say, so uh, you got the 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 names here. You got Ben Montench. You got Jeff Bridges. You got Jim Keltner. Uh, you got uh, I don't know. Oh man! But Larry Campbell is someone uh, whose work I admire so much with Dylan and with Levon Helm. My son is named after Levon Helm. I just want to put that out there because I like saying it. Oh, nice. Yeah, and uh, uh, I love Larry Campbell. That, to me, is one of the biggest revelations. I don't think he's done anything like this. Is that fair? Uh, that's fair, and I actually know that for a fact because years before I interviewed him, I was his publicist briefly. He oh. and his wife, Teresa Williams, had a uh, had a, an album come out, and I did PR for him. And he did – so we, he did a number of interviews, and he would – he was, I mean, he's a charming guy, so he would charm people, but basically say next to nothing about Bob Dylan in such a way that no one felt bad that he basically didn't. <laughs> he deferred. Yeah. It was, it was such an honor to play Blowing in the Wind. And I grew up with that song, that sort of thing, which, which is, which is fine. But yeah, I, this is then, I don't know, four or five, six years later when I, when I interview him, 
we go way deep. And of course, he was on the road with Dylan for, I think, seven years. So of course, he has all these amazing stories. And again, it's one where I come in with with specifics. I say, on this date, you played for the Pope. And he and amazing story about him playing for the Pope that he's never told before. And I say, on this date, you did, you know, this award show. And so I ask him about Soy Bomb. And I don't think anyone's ever asked him about Soy Bomb before. And even, you know, I get those are fairly famous, but even down to more nitty gritty ones where like at one point, and I, as a music nerd, I found this fascinating. I was like, in 2004, you had this girl from the North Country guitar picking part that as a budding guitarist, I spent like two years yeah. trying to learn. Yeah. And so I, that's experience specific. And I, but I, I use that as a way to say, it's like, how do you come up with a new arrangement of this old song? Like, is Bob Dylan literally saying, go learn this? And so that leads into him talking about rehearsals and the sort of jamming that would lead to this totally new revelatory guitar picking arrangement that he would play in Girl from the North Country. Um, now I'm, now I'm going on a tangent, but I love Larry Campbell. No, I love him too. I love him and I've never heard him, read him talking about Dylan in this way. I will confess, I, I've tried to talk to Larry over the last 15, 20 years since he left the band. And I, there's two things that I often thought, and I think they're both maybe wrong. One, oh, maybe all these folks signed NDAs and they're not supposed to talk about Bob. And then as I've grown older, I'm like, I bet they didn't do that. I bet these people uh, just don't want to talk about him out of deference for Bob. And then on a more practical level, because people come and go, like Charlie Sexton left or was asked to leave. I can't remember if I, I don't know that story, but he left the band and then came back. So I wonder if it's also like keeping a door open um, to Bob's world as well. I, it's, well, not all of those things, because I've literally asked about NDAs and people say no, um, but it's Great. only the second yeah. two. Because as, as I say, a lot of these people come and go and a lot of these people and all of them sort of show deference to Bob. I mean, I should say I got some amazing people that I'm really excited about. I, I still have a ton of no's too. I mean, that's the thing, you know, I'm still, that's, yeah. which is nice about having the newsletters. I'm going to keep plugging away. You mentioned Sexton. I'd love to talk to Sexton. Yeah. And he's out so, of the band again, right? He's out. Yeah. yeah. He he left sort of pandemic. He, he didn't come back for rough, the rough and rowdy tour. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there, I mean, there's definitely some of that of people. And again, I think that's what helps when people are able to see other ones I've done, which is why the newsletter has helped. Like, again, I'm not... There's tons of backstage stories, but I'm not prying for gossip. I'm not trying to get into like real personal life stuff that would piss off Dylan. You know, Dylan, Dylan's camp and manager and everything, they know about the book. They have copies like they're fine with it. Yeah. It's not – I mean there's a lot of personal stuff in terms of his life on the road and his relationship with the musicians. But I'm not, you know, probing for details on his kids or his wives. No, or no. I mean that's not exactly – so I so I think that does help people open up. I think I'm probably almost everyone I first contact is reticent about it, maybe with a few exceptions. Yeah, but yeah. It, it definitely takes some some sort of convincing. Well, I think those moments for them are so special. I, there's somebody, it might be uh, Stan Lynch, who says he's saving a story for his own book. You know, I think some people are hanging on to stories. But I also, I feel like I learned more about Tony Garnier from your book than I, I, I've known before. Just little asides, little... Little ways in which, I mean, I, I knew generally that Tony seemed to be the band leader and has been the longest standing musician um, in Dylan's career, I would say, at this point, right? That's fair to say? Like he's, oh, by, by far. By far, yeah. So I, like, what I'm saying is I've learned a lot from this book and, and this universe you've created of people. It's amazing. And um, on that note, you said you got some no's. Uh, I want to ask you a twofold question. One, I know it's going to be hard for you to pick. Is there a particular highlight uh, from this book uh, in terms of people you got to speak to things you learned maybe from that person 
not just because they're a big name or a legendary figure. Do you have like could if you had to if there was a an interviewer asking you putting you on the spot saying what's there like, is. <laughs> what is your <laughs> most significant maybe highlight from this book in terms of who you spoke to as you say that's a that's a tough one I mean Larry who we were just talking about he's big yeah. for me because he was the first guitarist I saw you know he was in that in that band and actually Freddie Coella who was much shorter tenured, but that first show I saw in 2004, they were the two guitarists. So again, I sort of revere them as just they were part of my my introduction to Dylan. I mean, someone like Winston Watson, who I never saw live, you know, he was, he, he was in the 90s, he was before my time, but like he was just such an engaging storyteller and probably the one story I hear about more than any other from the book is the story about Bob Dylan and Winston Watson's daughter who called him Uncle Bob and was just Uncle like hanging around backstage. She was, she was like <laughs> yeah. six or something. Yeah. You know, so those those really sort of stand out to me. I mean, one other that stands out to me is particularly memorable is and it sort of has a funny origin story. I maybe a year ago, year and a half maybe, I did like a survey of the people who subscribed to my newsletter and I you know, demographics partly, where do you live, that sort of thing. One of the questions was who do you want me to interview? And you know, a lot of people were like Bob Dylan. I was like, "Okay, yeah, I'll text him." Um, mm-hmm. but one person <laughs> one person replied and said, "Me." And I was like, me? Like, what? who are you? And so I, like, Googled it, and, and she was an Australian musician. And Oh, yeah. I didn't, see, I, didn't, I didn't see any Bob Dylan connection, so I, I emailed her. I was like, I mean, I was like, so what, what do you mean me? Like, hi, who are you, basically, in a, in yeah. a more polite way? Yeah. She had this – her name is Xanthi Littermore. She has this amazing story about being invited by Bob Dylan himself to open for Bob Dylan and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers in Sydney, Australia – or Melbourne, I think – in um 86 – by Bob Dylan, he just met her. She was like a fan, but but uh, you know, a musician with some following locally. She was a fan. She talked to Bob. They like talked about music for a while, and then he invites her to open this show, even though he still hasn't actually heard her play music. They've just sort of he can tell that she knows what she's talking about, and she sounds good. And she said she you know because she's told me because Dylan is such a private person, you know, for forty years she hasn't told anyone the story, but she had read some of my interviews in the newsletter. Yeah, that's remarkable. And so she decided this was the right time to open up. And, you know, she's – you mentioned some of the famous names in the book. She's one of the most obscure. But she has this amazing story she's never told. So that one sort of jumped out at me. No, it's, that's a remarkable story and I take it uh, at her word. I know there's a, a different version of that story told by I think a tour manager. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. He, so uh-huh. so the, the short version of her story is that he is that uh, Dylan – she met Dylan at this at a hotel where she'd been like heard he was staying. They end up chatting, talking. He invites her into the car. They, they talk music. The, the, the funniest anecdote or one of the funniest is, is he says, so tell me the first line of one of your songs. And so she does a song she just written. But then yeah. she, she, she's, she's kind of fiery you know, and, and quick. So she comes back with something he didn't expect, which is now you tell me one of the first line of one of your songs. <laughs> Which is hilarious. And then he laughs and he says – she says he, he sort of talks in a whisper. So he leans right over and he goes, there must be some way out of here. <laughs> um, but yeah, but the tour manager has a slightly different memory of it being like a busker that Bob Dylan had seen. I tried to I, – I, as I think I put in a footnote, I tried to fact check it whether it was literally two different – Bob Dylan was in the mood to invite random people to open for him, which which could be um, – I, I, if there's a busker out there, I'd love – love to hear from him or her um <laughs> or it could be that you know her memory of this is much more vivid and the tour managers is you know it was a much smaller part of his life story so he just misremembered some details i kind of like that there's two versions of that story uh to be honest and i i, I will say I, I trust hers it seems it seems valid and uh yeah and the remarkable amount of evidence 
that is on YouTube or the internet to corroborate. Like that was a problem. Your book is one of these books that I describe as a problem for me and my wife because I like to read at night. We like to read at night before bed. And -hmm. then I have my telephone and I'm like, oh, I want to watch the hard to handle movie right now. Uh, And then I turn it on. She's like, hey, trying to sleep over here. I'm like, yeah, right. Sorry. I just want to watch a couple minutes. I'm sorry. And then I put it away (laughs) and I look at it hopefully the next day. Anyway, it's great. Uh, You mentioned Charlie Sex in there. I would uh, would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the people you wish could have made it in, people you still want to talk to with your newsletter. Hadn't thought of that angle. The book is done. It's out. Um, Were there any where you were like, ah, that was close. I almost got it. It didn't happen. Um, I think all the close ones I eventually was able to seal the deal on, but there's a ton of musicians I'd love to talk to. I mean, one, and again, this is not a famous person, but is meaningful to me, this drummer named George Rosselli. Oh, my God. was the drummer for a decade, yeah. including, again, I talked about Larry Campbell and Freddie Coella, that first show. He was, George Rosselli was on drums for that first show and for the next decade worth of shows I saw. And I just thought he was New Orleans guy, had sort of a jazz touch. But I love really his playing. I've had debates I with other drummers about it, but I love his playing. Phenomenal. And, you know, I've, 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 messages have been passed between people who know him, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he's not there yet. It's fine. Like I say, I'm glad I have this newsletter so that I'm not literally qu- closing the book, to use an obvious metaphor, on these interviews. I'm going to keep trying, George Rosselli and a bunch of other people. And maybe in a few years, the, there will be a volume two of the book. Oh, that would be great. I would, I would pick that up. Well, real, real quick, because I'm blanking on it, because I think I read about it at the time. Do we know why George is no longer in the band? Nothing official. There are rumors of health issues, um, which there often are. I mean, that is that – is, if people don't get fired by Dylan, that's often what happens. Um, but then mm-hmm. again, an interesting thing with George Sully is there were heart, heart health issues at the beginning too. He joins the band and I think, oh, too, almost immediately has to leave. And Jim Keltner, who I did talk to, sits yeah. in because he says Rosselli's having carpal tunnel issues. Clearly, they got fixed because then he comes back and he stays for another 10 years. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing about people leaving the band is it's almost – Unless they tell me about it, it's under mysterious circumstances. Just a few months ago, Charlie Drayton, another drummer who I loved, a lot of people loved, sort of vanished from the band, and all of a sudden there was a new drummer. And there's never any, there's never a press release. There's I'm never su- a statement pro- given. I'm, yeah, I'm surprised by these shifts, but we don't. I'm, I'm getting a sense more from your book about why people come and go, whether it's at Bill Dylan's behest, who for the most part he tends to ghost on people, yeah. and they don't know why they're not. Oh, we did a two year tour, and then. He didn't call us to make the album, and that was it. You know, that kind of stuff happens. And then other times, yeah, people are like, uh, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I've got a family to raise. Or Yeah, I, I mean, that's I'm- a lot of it. That just the fact that in the never-ending tour era, you will have been spending nine months at least of your life on the road every yeah. single year. I mean, that's why Larry Campbell left. It's yeah. like, it's great, but I mean, I want to do other things. Campbell said, you know, famous people were asking him to produce their records, and he never could do it. Or, or even worse, he would say yes and book a date, and then he'd get a, a note from Dylan's tour manager saying, all right, now we're going to be in Czechoslovakia. <laughs> then. Yeah. And so he has to cancel. So there's that, too. I, Larry, I think, had to turn down a Paul McCartney session or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that, you know, I write in the intro, I, the book's called Pledging My Time, and that's a big reason is because these people have pledged their time to him, and it's sort of a full a full time full year gig you're not doing a lot of other stuff you might want to do yeah well listen uh you've speaking of pledging your time you've given me a lot of time today i'm sorry if we went a little bit over and i am sorry if i rambled but i i got excited and i i want to talk about bob and i love it so i want to commend you on this book i i really enjoyed it i want to recommend it to everyone if people want to learn more about you and this book ray uh where would you like to send them um, the book's available, you know, all the usual places you might buy books. Um, yeah, I guess go to 
my Twitter for anything else. And then the newsletter is called Flagging Down the Double E's. Um, it's, the URL is dylanlive.substack.com. And that's ongoing. I have more interviews coming out there and just all sorts of Dylan in concert ephemera. Have you seen the Rough and Rowdy Ways shows? Yes, I've seen five of them, I believe. How do they rank? They're great. I mean, it's 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 fascinating because, like, I, I don't think I ever answered this because I started talking about something else. But you asked a while ago about, you know, the sort of sickness of seeing a bunch of shows. And my answer 10 to 15 years ago would have been, yeah, but you see three shows in a row and he's going to play different songs every time, yeah. right? That's not the case anymore. No. He plays the same songs mostly every night of a tour. So then you say, well, right, now really why are you seeing it? But what he changes are the arrangements. He changes the delivery, the vibe. Like I saw two shows in a row in London last fall, the first time I've ever seen him overseas. Identical set list. He didn't sing a single different song. But like the feel, the emotion, in some cases the literal arrangements of the song was totally different. So as you say, it's sort of a sickness. Most people would say that's nuts to see what is on paper the same show. But unlike most of his peers, in the room it doesn't feel like the same show. I would agree completely. The last batch of shows I saw, three or four of them, took my son uh, to see uh, a show in Barrie, Ontario. And uh, my son couldn't quite make it. He fell asleep during, I think, uh, To Make You Feel My Love, I want to say, or Standing in the Doorway. I'm blanking right now. It was one of the one two of songs. slow time out of mind. Well, I sing those balance. two. I, those are songs I've sung to my children since they've been of age. At night, at bedtime, those are some of the lullabies, if you will, that I've sang. And I says to him, hey, it's coming up. And he's like, okay. And he just fell asleep in his chair. And we had to leave <laughs> that show a little early. It was close to the encore, as I recall. But uh, That's a lullaby. That's what I it's think I did, did exactly. He's like, right, I know this song. Oh, yeah. It puts me to uh, And he was out. <laughs> anyway, it's it's great. Uh Bef- uh, anything else besides your Dylan stuff that you want to plug before we go? No, but I wanted to ask you one question I just thought of, which is speaking of Ontario and Canada, have you ever seen the guy Paul James? Have you ever been at one of those shows where yeah. Paul James has sat in? Because that's that's the in terms of Canadian content in this book. There's this one guy, Paul James, who just sits in like practically every time <laughs> Dylan's I in believe, the Toronto area for about 15 years. I believe there's a reference to Paul playing uh, with Dylan in Oshawa and London, Ontario. Is that correct? That sounds right, yeah. Yeah, I was at both I know of them. London. I was Where at bo- both of those shows. Uh, that was are- when he was auditioning, which he did not get the job, but he was like auditioning for the band and just was thrown up there to be Dylan's new guitarist. That's- and I think that was when they brought Sexton back in. Yeah, it was a little, it wasn't, I will confess, uh, the Freddie Coelho shows I saw didn't, I remember distinctly at the Ryko Coliseum, Freddie Coelho was doing a solo. <laughs> Larry Campbell wanders over to him to sort of play along with him rhythm. And as Coella is finishing the solo, Larry, because I was front row, Larry uh-huh. smiles and shakes his head and then walks away. <laughs> and then I think it's the next night or the night, one of the nights later, I feel like the Phoenix might have been after that one. At the cool house, Dylan does extended band outros, which he would do sometimes. Mm-hmm. And he tells the joke. He t- I'm sure you've heard the joke. I think I've, you've quoted it and I've quoted it. It's something like, uh, and uh, on the guitar, Freddie Coella. We always like to say Freddie eats a lot of chicken because he's always in such a foul mood. We all chuckle. Freddie does not. And my <laughs> my, I read in the book Freddie's accounting of why he left the tour. I swear, Freddie was not on the tour the rest of the tour. Like that, that after that show, I don't think, I might be wrong, but it wasn't too long after that I think Freddie was gone. And I watched these interactions thinking, uh-oh. 
<laughs> he made fun of him, and then he was he was gone. Sorry for doing a Dylan impression, by the way. I, I know that's a heck. No, Dylan would. I, I think Freddie was okay with it because Dylan would. There was a period where he was just introducing band members with jokes a ton. At the second show I saw, George Rosselli, who I mentioned was the drummer, and, and Dylan said, uh, "George Rosselli, I'm not going to do the impression. George Rosselli <laughs> is from New Orleans." They got, a, they got a lot of snakes down in New Orleans. When it rains, they put them on their car, call them windshield vipers. <laughs> so these are, these safe are for another 10 years. So. These are very funny but terrible jokes. Yeah, Someone no, gave I, Bob like a – I bet it like a book from the 50s of like, yes. of like jokes to use at a party and he was going through them for a yeah, while. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I interviewed Paul James when I was a, a, a reporter at a newspaper. I went and saw him play a little tiny, tiny show in Cambridge, Ontario. And uh, and yeah, for me personally, like there's some Richard Thompson. There's just people in your book where I'm like, oh yeah, we I've talked to some of those folks, but there's just so many that I would love to talk to at some point, And now I don't gotta because you did it, and it's remarkable. It's really remarkable. So I just want to congratulate you again, let folks listening that uh, there's links in the uh, show notes here. Click on them, check out this book, uh, and follow Ray. Uh, Ray, it was really nice to reconnect with you after uh, meeting you briefly in Tulsa and. Sorry again. I think we were supposed to hang out, and then we separated, and I didn't see you. I texted you to be like, I'm sorry, and then I flew out the next day. Anyway, <laughs> I just want to say it's been lovely to get to connect with you this way over our mutual love of uh, of Bob Dylan, and uh, I wish you the best of luck in the future. Thanks again for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. Next time, as you say, if we were just hanging out socially, getting a beer, we'd be talking about the same thing, I'm sure, so it's been fun. <laughs> 
Also, what else was I going to say? Oh, Patreon. Yeah, if you want, you can support the show on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep this podcast uh, going. $6 American or more a month grants you access to exclusive content. You get episodes earlier than everybody else and uh, some other stuff, too. If you want a T-shirt uh, for, for the show, there's two designs. There's Supplies are dwindling. Sizes are sort of around and some are gone forever I don't know if you want a shirt or anything else just message me on Patreon again you can learn more at patreon.com slash creative control thank you so much thanks again to Pizza Trocadero the bookshelf and Planet Bean Coffee respectively in Guelph Ontario and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton Ontario for their in-kind support for this show Uh, you can learn more about them with the links in the show notes there thanks as always to my friend Jim Guthrie for letting me use Uh, some music that he has composed himself and told me I can borrow. That's nice. You can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you so much for listening to this episode with Ray Padgett. I assume you might be here because you're either a fan of Ray's uh, or Bob Dylan's, possibly mine. I don't want to get modest here. You might be here for me. In any case, I do really urge you to check out Ray's book and to follow him uh, on social media and subscribe to his newsletter. And if you can subscribe to this podcast or follow it and tell your friends all about it, that would be great as well. Otherwise, I hope you're keeping well and that we uh, interact together soon, one way or another. And uh, yeah, that's about it for now. I'll talk to you very soon. Be well. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.